Good morning and welcome, especially welcome if you are new to Bretton Baptist Church or perhaps if this is your first time joining our online live stream. My name is John and I'm one of the members of Bretton Baptist Church and at the moment we are looking through the Gospel of Mark. And When Brian asked me to preach this weekend he didn't give me a particular passage, he said why don't you just read through Mark and see what jumps out at you. So I'm going to be focusing on a few passages in Mark chapters 2 and 3. So get your Bibles ready and together we're going to be looking at what is our church's response to Jesus? What is our individual response to Jesus and how can we become more active followers of Jesus? Let's start by zooming out a bit and remembering where we are in the Gospel of Mark. Now the reason Mark wrote this book was to present Jesus's identity as both Jewish Messiah and Son of God and to call everyone to follow him. He does this by showing, uh, showing us the teachings and actions of Jesus, but also in particular Mark draws out people's reactions to Jesus. So he shows us that uh, effectively you're either for him or against him. Now Mark makes it clear that Jesus was here for a purpose, to announce that God's kingdom is at hand. Jesus concentrates on teaching, but he shows his spiritual authority by performing so many healing miracles but massive crowds start following him around. It's hard to catch your breath in the first half of Mark. I mean, we're up to chapter 3 out of 16, so we're less than a fifth of the way through the book, and already we've seen 16 examples of Jesus' teaching and healing ministry. It's relentless. Now, these events aren't necessarily all listed in chronological order. Perhaps it would help to think of it uh, like video clips, almost like a behind-the-scenes docudrama of a life with Jesus and his disciples. Either way, this is clearly the tireless work ethic of a man on a mission. So what's our response to Jesus? Uh, our church's response, I should say. The passage that really caught my attention and stuck out uh, like never before was chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. Let's read it together. Mark 2 verses 18 to 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can a guest of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. So up to this point, uh, most people have been delighted and amazed at Jesus' teaching of miracles, but he's just started to attract some opposition from the Jewish authorities. Here, some folks ask Jesus a question that seems innocuous, but have you ever had someone question you about the way you're doing something? Uh, and something about the way they ask the question makes you think that they really don't think you're doing the right things. It's hard to be sure, but this feels like one of those situations to me. The questioner is um, comparing Jesus to John the Baptist 
and the Pharisees. And effectively they're saying, well, they behave this way. Why aren't you doing the same thing? Jesus responds rather cryptically by talking about weddings, wineskins and ripped jeans. Now, I'm not going to focus on the wedding analogy because I think that's probably the easiest to understand. Fasting in the Old Testament was often um, an, an act of mourning. And Jesus is saying, hey, I'm the bridegroom at the wedding feast. I'm the light and life of men. How can you be sorrowful when I'm around? How can you be mourning? But the bit about wineskins and patches always felt a bit odd to me. What does it mean? Is it linked to fasting specifically? Well, here we go. Winemaking 101. When you make wine, you combine grape juice and yeast in a fermenting process. <clears throat> the yeast reacts with sugars that are present in the grape juice uh, to produce alcohol and carbon dioxide gas. The process takes some time and it can even continue after the wine has been bottled. Now the carbon dioxide that's produced exerts pressure on the container and in first century Palestine the container would have been a wineskin made from animal skins. Winemaking and brewing are pretty much the same today as they were in Jesus' day, and so are the hazards. Many a home brewers come home to a sticky mess as their fermenting process has foamed all over the floor or their glass bottles have exploded. They even have a name for it. They call it beer bombs. If you get bored this afternoon, hopefully you won't get too bored during my sermon, but this afternoon you might like to Google the Great Beer Flood of 1814 when giant fermentation tanks in a London brewery ruptured under pressure and flooded the local area with a 15-foot tidal wave of beer. It's no laughing matter though, eight people were killed in the flood, uh, which contained almost one and a half million litres of beer. Now, I don't know about you, I've got no frame of reference for what one and a half million litres of anything looks like. So I did a few calculations and worked out that it's roughly equivalent to three Jack Hunt swimming pools. That is a lot of beer. Anyway, back to the point. So when you put new wine into a strong and elastic new wineskin, it stretches as the wine settles down. But old wineskins, they've already been stretched as far as they'll go and they've lost their elasticity. So if you put new wine into an old wineskin, it would burst and that would ruin both the wine because it'd be all over the floor and I'm not drinking that and it would ruin the skin because it'd be in tatters. It's the same thing with, with the ripped clothes. If you, anyone who's bought new clothes and worn them, then washed them and then put them on again, knows that fabric shrinks. I hate that feeling. So if you want to mend your old jeans that have already shrunk and you cut a patch out of brand new cloth that hasn't shrunk yet and you cut it to the right size and stitch it in, well, that's not going to end well. Unless you're really going for the ripped jeans look, but in which case, what are you doing mending your jeans in the first place? Which begs the greater question, why is Jesus banging on about wineskins and torn clothing? Well, Jesus is hinting that the Jewish authorities were so focused on their religious traditions and rules that they'd lost sight of what God was doing. They were fixated on their idea of the conquering messianic king who was going to free them from the uh, oppressive rule of the Romans. With all of this structure and closed-minded thinking, it would be impossible for them to grasp and accept who Jesus the Messiah really was and how God was planning to save his people once and for all through a suffering servant. The old wineskins and old garments 
They represent the old Jewish ways of doing things, the old covenant, Mosaic laws and Pharisaic rules. And the new wine and new cloth, they represent Jesus' teaching, the new covenant of sacrifice, resurrection and grace. Jesus had to start afresh with disciples who were open-minded, even if it took them absolutely ages to work out what was going on. Now the Pharisees, they saw this new teaching as a threat to their authority, their traditions and their way of life. And in trying to preserve what they had, they ended up standing in opposition to God. They weren't capable of being flexible and seeing what God was doing. So the tradition of regular fasting, that belonged to the old covenant. It was part of the Pharisaic tradition. Jesus isn't saying that fasting is bad, far from it, but it shouldn't be an end in itself. R.C. Sproul makes a stark observation here. He says, sometimes the need for reform is so great that the fresh work of God can't be contained in old or expected forms. This was certainly the case, um, it was certainly true of the Jewish faith in Jesus' time, but there's a, there's a warning for us today as well. A few weeks ago, Richard Stanbrook said, when you're protecting the old, the new things can look like a threat. And Tom Wright agrees with this. He says, everything is different as a result of what Jesus did. But sadly, that doesn't stop us from trying to combine the new things the gospel offers with old things from the world all around us. Or indeed, the old and often unnecessary traditions of the church of former years. When God's doing new things, we should join the party, not grumble because the new wine is threatening to burst our poor old bottles. New wine, it's fizzy, it's energetic, and it's sometimes messy. And do you know what? It, it isn't mature. It doesn't taste great yet. If you taste it, it might taste quite sour. And worst of all, it puts pressure and strain on the established structure. Where are we seeing God pouring new wine in our church and in our community? How can we avoid the temptation to go and clean up the mess and try and snuff out or quench the energy? How do we become even more flexible in order to support even more new wine? And hey, to encourage and impart flavour as that wine matures. It's imperative that we as a church shape our structure, our practices and our thinking to follow the fresh work of God. It's ridiculous to think that we could somehow squeeze or confine uh, God, the work of God, into our convenient little structures and cosy familiar traditions and practices. We've got to examine our motives. We can't afford to preserve our traditions. We have to preserve our faith, our beliefs. We can't afford to preserve traditions, we must preserve our faith. In fact, we've got to abandon our preferences and instead choose to prefer our relationships. So abandon our preferences and choose to prefer our relationships. This means completely rejecting consumerist Christianity. Don't go looking for a church that ticks all your preference boxes on a Sunday morning. No, look for a church where you feel you can belong and contribute. We've got to allow God to shape our faith through fellowship and shape our fellowship through faith. It seems a bit back to front, but what I mean by that is that our faith, our individual faith, grows strongest 
when we're in fellowship with other committed Christians. We must dedicate time to developing deep fellowship. And the way we do that is through attending church, um, becoming a member of a connect group, uh, and by serving our ministry teams together. As we submit to one another, God will use that fellowship to mould and strengthen our individual faith. But likewise, as we all engage together on a journey of deepening relationship with God, he'll speak to us about how we should transform our fellowship, our structures and practices, our church, in order to follow where he is leading. So we allow God to shape our individual faith through fellowship together, but we also allow God to shape our fellowship through our individual deepening faith. I feel that we as a church are at a crossroads. We've heard a number of prophecies over recent years that we're storing up energy, ready to release into a new season. But what are we going to do? COVID-19 has forced us to reimagine what church is like. It's burst our bubble. Uh, all our traditions are out the window. When we get through this pandemic, do you want things to go back to the way they always were? Or do you want to look for opportunities for new growth and change? You know, the first time the Israelites were told to take hold of the promised land, they paused. There were some encouraging voices among them, but there were others who drowned out those voices and they made the challenges seem insurmountable. Their faith was stymied by fear and they ended up in the wilderness for 40 years. Do we want that to happen at Breton? The need for reform in Peterborough is as great as ever. And if we don't follow God's working and his direction, he'll find a new wineskin to use and we'll be put out to pasture. And that's the thought that haunted me during the entire of my time on the leadership team. I don't want Breton Baptist to become a footnote in Peterborough Church history. It's got nothing to do with keeping the institution alive for its own sake, heaven forbid. But Revelation 22 talks about the river of the water of life that flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the New Jerusalem. And, you know, if the Holy Spirit is that river, I don't want to be stuck in some eddy current backwater over there. I want to be slap bang in the middle of the raging torrent of God's grace and love. And I love our church. So I want to pull up the anchor and throw off everything that holds us back so that we can immerse ourselves in the flow of God's saving work. It was quiet and orderly in the Jewish temple. But wherever Jesus was, there were storms, there was controversy, there was opposition. That's where we should be. So we've looked at how our church should respond to Jesus. Now I want to spend some time looking at how we personally respond. A couple of weeks ago, we read about the calling of the first disciples, the fishermen. Let's now look at a couple of passages in Mark chapters 2 and 3, where Jesus calls and appoints more disciples. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having lunch at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. 
Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to, the, to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He pointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and have the authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Barnages, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and G Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. When I read through this part of Mark's Gospel, um, two things struck me like a thunderbolt. I just I did not occur to me before. Firstly, Jesus called to him those he wanted. Not the cleverest people, not the best looking, not the most charismatic, and certainly not the most religious. He calls those he wants. And he wants you. <laughs> he wants you not because of what you can do or what you can achieve but because of who you are. Who wants to be in a close relationship with you? BFFs, if you will. But why did Jesus call these 12? I mean, Peter, he was an impetuous hothead, a working class fisherman whose big mouth often got him into trouble. James and John, they were called the sons of thunder. Why? Well, because they had famously explosive tempers. Not only that, but they were ambitious and they were a little bit too concerned about their own status. Thomas, we know, was a bit of a cynic and a pessimist. Philip, he was an outsider. He was immersed in the cultural trends of the day. Judas, he was a fierce nationalist. And in hindsight, we know that he was a thief and a traitor. Matthew, or Levi, well, he was a tax collector. And to the Jews, that meant that they hated him. He was a traitor to the Jewish cause. He was the scum of society. Um, and Simon, well, Simon was a freedom fighter. You could call him a terrorist. He was a member of the Jewish resistance army fighting against Roman rule. So if you don't think much of yourself, you're in great company. These were ordinary common folks, not superstars, not great speakers or gifted evangelists. The only thing they had in common was that they were prepared to drop everything and say yes to Jesus. So Jesus calls those he wants and he wants you. The second thing that struck me is the reasons that Mark gives for Jesus calling his disciples. And there are only three of them. To be with him, to go and preach and to drive out demons. So first and foremost, I'd love this and I hadn't spotted it before. Jesus wants you to be with him. Just be. No guilt. No feelings of inadequacy. Just enjoy the relationship and bond of fellowship. You may not know this about me, but I'm hugely self-critical. Not a day goes by when I don't tell myself that I'm not good enough as a father. I'm not good enough as a husband. I'm not good enough as an engineer or as an employee. Uh, I'm not good enough as a Christian. I'm not good enough as a worship leader. On and on. And one thing that God has spoken over me many times, because he knows that and he doesn't like that I feel that way about myself, He's even used complete strangers to minister these words into my life. The phrase that he's said to me many times is, you are enough. <laughs> this takes all my not good enoughs and replaces them with, shh, I will love you. 
And I want to speak that over you this morning. You are enough. Jesus loves you. God loves you. Mark shows us time and again in this gospel that discipleship is not about following a code or a bunch of rules. Discipleship is about a relationship, an ongoing and deepening relationship with Jesus. We've got to prioritise time with Jesus through regular prayer and Bible study, just so that we can hear from him and be prepared to drop everything and say yes when he calls us. So how can we become a more active follower of Jesus? Well, that leads me on to the other two reasons that Mark gives for appointing his disciples. To go and preach and to drive out demons. Wait, wait you don't expect me to do that, do you? Oh, yes. Yes, I do. Jesus doesn't call us to be passive disciples. He wants us to be active followers. Look at what Jesus says right here in Mark chapter 3, verse 35. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is emphasising the importance of spiritual fellowship as our true family identity. He says, if you want to be in my family, you do the will of God. Whoever does God's will is in my family. Well, what's the will of God? Why don't you have a read through the New Testament and see what Jesus commands us to do. See where God's heart is. We're commanded to love one another. This isn't Oh, getting along with your mates kind of love. This is some, it's the same love that enabled Simon the freedom fighter and Matthew the Roman lapdog to unite in a powerful way. I mean, we're talking cats and dogs, Labour and Tory, Newcastle and Sunderland supporters. It's, it's mind-boggling. So we're called to love one another. But also we're commanded to go and make disciples, baptising them and teaching them about Jesus. God's heart, God doesn't want anyone to be lost. <clears throat> In the Old Testament, Joel prophesied, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on servants, men and women alike. That's in Joel chapter two. He was talking about now. The time after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is available to all who believe in Jesus. I believe that powerful supernatural ministry of the Holy Spirit is something that we should be welcoming, praying for and eagerly seeking. We should expect to see visions, dreams and miracles accompanying the ministry of Breton Baptist Church. But I know Romans 12 says that we don't all receive the same gifts and we don't receive them all in the same measure. But I do believe that we can all exercise these gifts to an extent and I definitely believe that our church shouldn't be lacking in any of them. Now, I'm not a gifted evangelist but I can talk to my friends and colleagues about Jesus and the difference that he's made in my life. I don't have a healing ministry but I genuinely believe if I lay my hands on enough people and speak healing over them in Jesus name that I, at some point I will see miraculous healing happening. And I'm not a prophet per se, but again, I believe that God wants to and will give me supernatural words of wisdom and encouragement for people if I just care to listen to him. In fact, I've got some wonderful testimonies of how God's used me to prophesy specifically into people's lives, complete strangers. But that's probably a sermon for another day. 
This is new wine. It's fresh and exciting, it's full of energy. I don't know about you, but I could never get bored with, um, with seeing people healed and set free from addiction. I don't think I could ever get bored of seeing lives transformed and relationships restored. I'll never get bored with speaking affirmation uh, and love into people's situations, into their lives. And I definitely will never get bored with explaining the gospel to someone and leading them to Jesus. These things are so, they're just the most exciting things we could ever do. We should want more and more of them. Thing is, if we never try, we never fail to live up to our low expectations. But if you dare to step out, yeah, sure, there'll be bumps in the road. But God won't disappoint you in the long run. Not at all. I'm not saying, by the way, that we should reject humble service and behind the scenes prayer. That is absolutely amazing. It's pivotal. And in fact, Jesus's own ministry was fueled by a quiet, understated commitment to prayer and humble service. But his ministry also overflowed into bold, disruptive and powerful miracles, teaching and prophecy. If we reject that, the power side of our ministry and just focus on the behind the scenes quiet prayer side, then we're rejecting half of our ministry. Jesus sent out the fishermen to perform miracles. In Matthew 17, he said we do even greater things than he. In John 14, faith small as a mustard seed can move mountains. I don't know about you, but I don't feel like I've moved any mountains recently. Are we calling Jesus a liar or are we just too afraid of trying? Before you go hiding behind the sofa, because I know that's how I feel uh, and how I want to react when, when I hear these challenges, take heart. God knows our limitations and all he asks is that you take a step of faith where you are right now. So how do we do that? How do we become active followers or at least more active than we are today? Well, action starts with a thought, right? No, that's thinking. Action starts with an act, with a step. In fact, it's so important to take that first step before we can think ourselves out of it. Don't worry, I'm not saying we should act without thinking, but rather you've got to take that first step and then trust that God will guide your thinking, that God will guide you where you need to go. You know, when our eldest daughter was young uh, and we were going up the stairs together, she would rush ahead and run up the stairs as fast as she could. And then without word of warning, she would just spin 180 degrees and launch herself off the stairs. And she just had absolute faith that we would catch her. And we always did. And then we always said, don't ever do that again. But she always did. You know, lots of small steps, they build momentum, build encouragement, they build to bigger steps. We need to tell each other about our small steps so that we can all be encouraged literally emboldened. There's a church not far away from here in Bedford called King's Arms and they set themselves a challenge not too long ago to perform a thousand acts of courage in one year. And we've heard about acts of kindness and random acts of kindness and they're okay but acts of courage, this is new, that was groundbreaking for them. You see, they had a little testimonies box and, and people would write down their act of courage and pop it in the testimony box. And at the start of every su Sunday service, 
they would read them out and after each one there would be huge cheers and rounds of applause for the act of courage. You see, they applauded the action, not the outcome. They celebrated the faith to act instead of finding fault with the methods. So even bad examples were good because they showed that we can all get stuck in and that having a failure isn't the end of the world. You know, the other week, um, before all this COVID-19 stuff, I was, uh, I was in the changing room at work with uh, a colleague. No one else was there and he was clearly suffering from some pain. So I asked what was wrong and he told me it was a persistent back injury. And I knew immediately I should offer to pray for him. So we talked about cricket for a bit and while well, I finished getting changed and then I went to leave. I bottled it. I, I didn't want to make myself uncomfortable. I didn't want it to feel weird. But I only got as far as the door and I put my hand on the door and went to open it and I just stopped. And it felt like I loitered there in the doorway for two or three minutes. It can't have actually been that long. I was having this internal argument with myself saying, no, you've got it gonna say something oh but it's weird and now it's even weirder because I've held this door for too long <laughs> so in the end I, I turned and I said something uh, rather sheepishly like hey let me know if you want to try prayer because I'd be happy to pray for you oh and I felt weird and it felt weak but he smiled and said thanks and we both went on our way and you know what it's not nothing it was something we should be proud of, of having up the faith to offer that miraculous option. Um, we need to share stories with each other of when we've tried, when we've tried to talk to someone about Jesus and they've said, get out of my face. Because when we do that, we all get a little bolder. We've got to applaud the courage to act. And we all start taking little risks here and there. And do, do you know what? Most of the time, the risks are pretty small. If you've got it wrong, the worst thing someone can say to you is F off. Um, or, no, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. And you can just chalk it down to experience. In fact, if someone responds aggressively and says, F off, well, yeah, okay, back away, but probably means you got it right and God's pressing in on them and they just, they're in denial, they don't want to hear it. <laughs> if you get it wrong, nobody dies. But if you get it right, someone comes alive because God speaks and they have an encounter with the risen Jesus. So let's not doubt God's purposes or what he can achieve through you and through me. Brian said, don't get too hung up on your purpose and calling in life. It's enough to do what's expected of you in the moment. You are enough. Leave the rest to God. Oh, and don't go thinking that because you're confined to your houses, you're somehow restricted in your ability to reach out. OK, I admit it. Laying hands on people is kind of frowned upon right now. But I dare you to spend just five minutes every day um, praying and asking God, is there someone that you want me to encourage today? Because he'll put one or two names on your heart, in your mind, for sure. But then ask God, is there a specific message you want me to deliver? And then wait and listen. It's the work of just a couple of minutes. You can do it when you're going for your daily exercise. And then scribble down whatever comes to mind. It's not going to it's not going to come across with this booming God speaking to me voice. It's, it's something that it'll just occur to you in your own head voice. Write that down 
no matter how weird it seems or how I'm unconnected or slightly odd or you might just be like, oh, this is so obvious and ordinary. Just write it down. Then go take your Bible, open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3. And there's three little things there that explain the reason for the God gives for prophecy. And we need to test what we what we thought against those three reasons. So what we've written down, does it strengthen? Does it encourage? Does it comfort? If the answer to any of those three is yes, or maybe, I dare you, I challenge you to send it to that person or ring them up and talk to them and see what happens. Well, I'm coming into land now. But if, like me, you're excited to see what new wine God will pour into our church in this new season and how we can become naturally supernatural in our daily lives, then I want to recommend a few resources to you. Um, so firstly is a book called Everyday Supernatural, Living a Spirit-Led Life Without Being Weird. That's by uh, Mike Pilavacci and Andy Croft. <clears throat> the second book is called Naturally Supernatural, The Normal Christian Life. That's by Wendy Mann of um, the King's Arms Church in Bedford. The third book is He Still Speaks by Wayne Drain. Yes, that's his real name. And Tom Lane. Uh, and But if money's a bit tight and you don't really want to buy some books, or perhaps like me, you've got so little time in your life for reading, uh, but you still want to you still want to reach out and, and lean into this, this teaching, I'd, I'd lead you to soulsurvivor.com. The Soul Survivor crew have put all of their talks from their Naturally Supernatural conferences online in both audio and video format for free. So you can download the audio like a podcast and listen to it as you go out for a walk. Um, or you can watch the video, maybe even use some of those for your connect groups. I can't recommend highly enough um, Wayne Drain's series on prophecy. On Neil and Janet Young, their incredible testimonies. Um, on pursuing the Holy Spirit as a church. And of course, Mike Pilavacci's wonderful teaching on church as family. So in summary, let's all be watchful together that our church isn't protecting the status quo, but is following God's leading. Let's encourage one another into ever deeper personal relationship with Jesus. And let's share our small acts of courage, whether they were complete failures or roaring successes and applaud one another's small steps of faith as we get active in sharing our faith and tapping into the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's close now in prayer. If you've been challenged uh, by anything I've said today, then I want to encourage you to be bold and stand up if you can right now uh, and place your hands out in front of you like this. You know, there's, there's nothing super spiritual about doing this, by the way. It's just, uh, it's just that action, body language, is hugely psychologically powerful to us human beings. And so it, it, it's a sign to our own uh, brains that, that we're ready to respond if we want to receive from God. And it's a sign to God that, yeah, we want to hear from him, we want to receive from him. So I encourage you, if you want to receive blessing as we pray, to, to stand if you're able, put your hands out, in front of you like this. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the same yesterday, today and forever. But that you are God of 
restoration, God of new relationships, God of uh, new wine and new life. And I pray now, Lord, for revival. I pray for revival in Breton. I pray for revival in Peterborough and the United Kingdom, Lord, that you would bring a fresh wave of um, your Holy Spirit to our communities, that you would pour out new wine in our churches for such a surplus of harvest that we'd have the challenge of working out how to include all these new people. Father, I ask you humbly for an increase in spiritual gifting, especially in the gifts of prophecy and of healing, of evangelism, of tongues, and of teaching and preaching, Lord. I pray that we would abound in these gifts. I pray also for a tidal wave of boldness and courage to go and share our faith in relevant ways, ways that aren't weird, but ways that are supernatural, ways that are powerful in your Holy Spirit, Lord. I pray for a tidal wave of boldness to share our faith with our neighbours, with our friends, with our families, with our colleagues. And Lord, that you might work in those relationships in powerful ways to bring about change and revival. And lastly, and most importantly, Lord, I pray for renewed passion for Jesus Christ in our minds, in our hearts, in our church. And that what might overflow into renewed energy and enthusiasm in our church today and for the season ahead. Thank you, God, for wanting us, for calling us and for appointing us to be with you. To go and teach people about you and to go and perform miracles in your name, Jesus. Amen.